Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition, who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, and welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. I'm Julie Wilkinson, and I'm the owner and founder of Wilkinson Accounting Solutions. Uh, We specialize in business acquisitions and exit strategy planning, hence why we've started the Build and Exit podcast as as we're on a mission to give our listeners top tips um, from all different areas of business of things they need to think about to transition their business from a lifestyle to an asset. So I'm really excited today that we've got Rachel Collar. Hi, Rachel. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Rachel is the owner and founder of House of HR, um, HR consultancy. Rachel came from corporate world and now is obviously working in the SME space. And I also worked closely with Rachel on my last acquisition. So there's going to be lots of things we can talk about today. Uh, But first of all, I just want to hand over to you, Rachel, to give us a bit of background about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Thanks for that introduction. So, yes, I was a, a corporate slave for 23 years in the world of HR, uh, working with right from small organisations right up to big global corporate brands. Um, and then uh, just over two years ago, uh, my husband survived a heart attack during the COVID pandemic. But that really sent us both off on kind of journeys about what's life, what's the purpose, what do I do? I love what I do. I just think I suddenly didn't like the way that I did it. Um, And I've always wanted to run my own business and thought to myself, do you know what? There must be a way I can do this. This is a life changing event has to happen to give you that kick up the backside that you need to do something about it. So then six months later, House of HR was born. I decided to make that leap and, and start to do things the way I wanted to do it a lot more. Oh, wow. And then how has the journey been? Have you been enjoying it? Absolutely. I mean, it's a complete roller coaster. Um, every day I learn something new. I'm still learning. Um, I didn't know the world of networking existed. So that's been interesting unraveling that. Um, but one thing I can say is the SME business owner community is overwhelmingly supportive to, to the point at the beginning, it felt like too much. It was so overwhelming. Um, everyone kind of wants to put their arm around you, give their advice, their perspective. And it's great to have so many different people to reach out on different topics, different subject matter experts. So almost having that those corporate departments you would have around you, like marketing, IT, finance, suddenly you've not got them, but you create those connections through the small business community and have those experts around you, and if not several of them as well. Yeah, definitely. So the world of HR then, I mean, typically people think it's boring. <laughs> Um, probably like finance, to be honest, you know, well, they all think we're boring, don't we, back office mm-hmm. staff. Um, but actually, yeah. it is a really key aspect. People, in the end, are the key assets of any business, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and especially mm-hmm. in the world of acquisitions, you know, people are actually buying businesses for, to obtain resource more than actually obtaining customers these days. So maybe give a brief overview about why you think HR in business in general is so important. 
God, absolutely. Like you say, they are the biggest assets. So it is, we're now, well, we're in a climate, even during the pandemic and still post-pandemic, so become even harder to one, recruit that talent you need in your business and retain it. And like you say, a lot of people look at the options of acquisition to actually get that resource, which I've certainly seen as well, because it's just, it's such a competitive landscape out there. And I think it's always looking at things that, what can we do to, it's hard to attract, but how do we keep people? How do we look after their well-being? How do we look after their development? How do we make sure they're engaged? They're happy to come to work. They enjoy what they do. And ultimately that they're productive. So there's some real challenges I think for businesses facing at the moment. I think that's why HR is so key um, because that retention piece is a real big challenge. Yeah. Why do you think having HR retains employees more than someone that doesn't have HR department? What, what do you think the differences are? Well, I think, you know, obviously there's a wealth of expertise you can tap into, different ideas, concepts, things you've not thought about. Obviously, I work with a lot of um, HR suppliers, um, design specific HR products for the SME markets. That could be software, that could be recruitment platforms. And often I can get a lot of things, either as free trials, opportunities for business to try those things, but also the employment law. That changes every April and October. So being on top of that, understanding actually the law says this, but what does it mean to me as an employer? Do I need to do anything? Do I not? Do I keep a watching brief on it? Do I need to change contracts or anything radically like that? And a good example is I do a lot of reviewing employment contracts for clients and a lot of changes remained in uh, March, April 2020. We were all very busy with the thing called COVID then. So people didn't see the changes in the law that happened. So I see a lot of businesses now kind of three years on that still haven't got employment contracts that are up to date. So it's those sorts of things, one, making sure you're compliant, but also helping you to become that employer of choice, which for me, the SME world is so much more agile rather than the corporate world. You know, I'm often speaking to the decision maker, the person that holds the budget strings. They can make a decision there and then. I don't have to go through eight layers of approval to get a, a, a position signed off to, to advertise. So that's where, for me, SMEs can make a massive difference and, and really get ahead of the game. Hmm. And what do you think is the one thing that people always have a misconception about in HR. So I'm just going to give you an example in finance. So I think the biggest one in finance, people think systems fix bad processes and they don't need people. And the reason I think that they make those judgments is because they think a system can just do everything, you know, because zero comes online and says it submits a VAT return. Um, but actually it might submit it, but the question is, does it submit it right? Do you think there's, what do you think is the one thing in HR that people have this misconception that, oh, you don't need that, or we do this. What do you think it is? I think it's definitely HR policies. Um, I don't like being the internal police force. Um, I'm one of these that I'm not, you don't need a 300 page staff handbook. I mean, how often do you ever read them? I've never read one that's 300 pages long. I kind of, after the second page, I start to fall asleep myself. And it's about having something that is really, suitable to your organization to your culture you don't need war and peace often you only need things as and when maybe they arise as long as you follow the statutory law that the government says that you've got to do is the barest minimum there's only a couple of policies you actually need by law so you don't need a big chunky staff handbook um, but definitely i think that's one where people say i've got that it's all okay i don't have to worry about anything else but then they often don't realise the consequences of what might be in that handbook and what they then have to follow as a result of having that very much in black and white. Yeah, because I think 
I mean, not that I'm the HR expert, but speaking to people, I think there's people conflict it with health and safety. So people will often say, oh, it's okay. I don't have to have more than five. I have to have more than five staff for it to warrant. But I actually think that's health and safety laws, not HR laws. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, you could be the HR expert, Julie. Um, Yeah, that's actually a really big misconception that often people say, I can worry about HR when I hit five people. Health and safety, absolutely. I mean, it should be before that if you're a good employer and care about your people. But you actually need to worry about things from that first employee. So having an employment contract in place and having statutory procedures in place, they count from day one. Um, not for two months' time you can hand out that contract. That employee has to sign that contract either before or in day one of employment. Hmm. And what's the worst... I mean, have you seen tribunals, employee tribunals? Have you been part of them before? Unfortunately, I have uh, many years ago. Um, I think, you know, definitely if you've come from the corporate world, they've got bigger purse strings. So particularly when there are complex employee relation cases, often there's compromises um, and usually there's a payoff as a result um, of that person leaving the organisation. So it never quite gets to, to court. And interestingly, if you're, you're like me and a real geek and you love reading employment law cases, you'll find lots of them are public bodies, public organisations. Because it's public money, they can't pay off these people. So often they will go the full course and will go to court as well. So that's why you won't see always a huge amount of uh, public organi- uh, private organisations going to tribunal. But definitely, I think it's uh, a different culture now. I think we're seeing now a, a rise in cases again. Um, speaking to peers in the HR industry since the COVID pandemic, we're all seeing a much, much higher level of grievances coming through because I think people's expectations of the workplace and what they want from it have definitely shifted over the past couple of years. So people are much more readily to maybe be able to complain about some of those changes in practices they don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I believe SME businesses should adopt a bit of a corporate mindset. I'm a bit like you. You don't need a 10-tier a sign-off and things like that because obviously that's not realistic for a for a you know a smaller organization but I think having a structure in place um, is really important and I think that comes with HR because obviously I have HR for my staff Um, and what I think the benefit of HR is is obviously there's the contracts and making sure you're abiding by the law but I think it's also then in real life when employees are working making sure that they know their objectives and they're working towards a goal. Um, and you can't, re- unless if you don't get a proper system in place and contracts and manage your staff properly, you can't really do those things. Yeah. And I think managing performance is an issue in every organisation, whatever the, the size or the structure. And we know there's big, big organisations out there um, in the corporate world who have ditched performance appraisals and objectives and all those things but ultimately it's you know you want to have productivity and profitability and the easiest way to do that is managing somebody's performance but you've got to have the clear infrastructure for them to know what's expected of them and how you're going to support them enable them to achieve those objectives as well yeah you know especially you know we see it a lot on the acquisitions I always say my little quote is uh, people want to buy um, an asset they don't want to buy a job and it's interesting on the acquisition side, you know, when you're seeing someone that's selling and they have this org chart and they think they've got the right-hand man or woman, right-hand man or woman, and these people are the FD and they're the MD. 
But actually, if you look in the real world, if you scoped the job of what these people are doing, what they've actually done is gone in and helped the owner work, go from working 60 hours a week to 30 hours a week. So from the owner's perspective, they're like their dream come true. But actually, when it comes down to decision making and taking ownership and accountability of the of the future of the business, often these senior roles aren't doing that. And I think it's because a lot, well, my experience is a lot of owners haven't come from a corporate world. And I do think they don't know hierarchical structure, you know, so they think it's just about giving them time back, not about developing those people to actually run the business. So then these buyers come in and come in and want budgets to be built. You know, they want KPIs and none of their staff have ever um, done any of these things. I mean, if someone, so, you know, if someone's buying a business, what do you think in terms of people would be three key things that they should maybe look for in employees in terms of what the what they're asking the seller about the employees of the business yeah and it's I mean definitely I could have a really long list um but definitely you know first and foremost is is looking at those contracts so knowing from a legal perspective what are you inheriting as, as a buyer you know what are terms and conditions that are in there but also not to get caught out by terms and conditions that aren't in the contract, but they've come what we call custom and practice, i.e. it could be something like a bonus that they've been paid every year, discretionary, but it's not in the contract. However, they've probably been paid it maybe for 20 years. So it almost becomes an implied uh, term in the contract. And that often, when I've dealt with a lot of um, cheaper transfer cases um, with acquisitions, that's often something that we can kind of uncover through the process because it's not always written down in black and white somewhere. Um, I think absolutely looking at the benefits, um, you know, what are the pension implications, the cost of those, are there healthcare, are there other benefits like employee assistance program, is there training that you're paying for, you know, lots of, you know, from a, a cost implication beyond kind of the salary and what's in the contract, what other things are there from a financial perspective that the employee is expecting or has got as part of their terms and conditions. And as we touched on kind of terms of HR policies, again, that can really drive what you might be inheriting in terms of the, the culture of the organisation as well. You know, is it kind of a everyone does everything by the rule book or is it quite a free flow or is there nothing at all? Um, and it's done a bit like that, finger in the air, which there, there often is a lot of those situations as well. So it is a definitely, and I'm going to be greedy and pick a four, but definitely are there any outstanding legal claims against the business that you're buying as well? Um, and that's often one that people think, well, I, yeah, don't ask that question because it might be you know, offensive, but ultimately you don't want to be buying a business where you could have a case that could be coming up against that employer. And ultimately, if they lose that case, it could be quite costly payout that might have to be paid as compensation as a result. So that's one that I think people don't really want to ask, but absolutely need to ask from a cost implication. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need to know what monies you're going to be owing, definitely, don't you, when you buy it? I mean, I think, so when I did my acquisition, and obviously we're seeing people doing acquisitions all the time, we're always recommending, I mean, talking to the staff if you can before the acquisition closes. I know I did that with the, the staff that we 2 would over on our acquisition. And it was so useful to speak to them, actually. One, you get, I mean, luckily our staff have just been absolutely brilliant. I'm really happy. But I suppose you get a feel for speaking to them, like what level they're at. And I definitely think that's important if you're getting someone that's apparently sort of second in command of the owner. So because they're effectively the new leader um, and you kind of need to know, do they have the leader qualities? Because I think what tends to happen is 
you know, people have been there 15 years, so they kind of just get promoted into the business, you know, promoted to that role because they maybe know the business, which is is good. You do want someone that knows the business, but ultimately knowing the business isn't the end, be all and end all. It's about can you actually manage that business, you know, end to end with the bits you don't know. Um, and also you can get a feel for, you know, what they feel about the organisation, what they do like, what they don't like. You know, you can ask some questions. Um, is that... Is that something you help you help people with in the HR process? Absolutely, because there's a, the lovely um, legislation, TUPI, that I'm sure lots of people have heard about. So in terms of that transfer process, the due diligence, it needs to be done in the background, as well as, like you say, the, the consultation, the communication um, with the individuals. Often that uh, falls quite heavily at the beginning on the person selling the business. But then when you're buying the business, obviously, you want to understand that skill set you're inheriting, where they are going to be working in the organisation. Like you say, they might have organically been promoted into the role that they're in. And actually, in your organisation, it wouldn't necessarily be, say, a leadership position. So, you know, that trying to ensure that that person, because, you know, we talk about individuals here, that that transition across from their current employer to a new one who they don't know particularly well, they don't know your culture, they don't know your appetite for how you manage people, that, you know, that transition could be quite a daunting prospect for individuals. You know, they could be concerned about, are they going to lose their job? All of those worries that come with it. But am I going to fit in? Am I going to get on really well with my my, you know, the new owner or my new manager. Um, and that's so it can be quite a worrying time. So I think having that open communication quite early on where possible um, is a really great practice to do. And definitely from a HR perspective, it's supporting you right from that outset, from that due diligence to total transfer and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I've, on this podcast, I mean, I mean, you're the eighth guest. Uh, we've probably had, well, I'd say at least five of the eight have done acquisitions and we talked about it and I know people came up quite a lot in all of those acquisitions um so things I remember people saying was you know they didn't drive up in the you know Ferrari or the um you know they wanted to go turn into the organization like they are just a person that they're not here to like invest and change everything they're here to invest because they want to make it better or being humble explaining to the staff as the buyer that actually they know more than the buyers do, they actually need these people on their journey. And I think these types of approaches, I mean, this is the type of approach I take as well. And I think these types of approaches work in the SME world, you know, in corporate world, like you say, where it's billion dollar deals, where they just come in, maybe they don't care about the people. But I think in the SME world, sellers really care about their employees. And that's one of the things they want protected. And, you know, they want buyers to be caring about their employees and doing right by them. So I, I definitely think HR is really important in that process. Yeah. And that's absolutely why I love working with SMEs, because I think there is a very different feeling about looking after people, that dignity, that respect, um, recognising people as individuals. And you can't hide as a number. Uh, you know, you are you know, potentially usually a small team and, and that impact, you know, you can almost double your organisation overnight can be quite a daunting prospect. So I think showing that you have that that human side to you, knowing that that's been the experience the others have demonstrated and that's worked for them, that's really great news and music to HR's ears. Yeah, we're all about, um, we're all about people, aren't we? Um, but I think it's just so important. Absolutely. I mean, the amount of times I see... Uh, I've seen it in corporate. So the amount of times I've seen, I suppose, owners or directors or leaders, whatever they may be in that organisation, sort of coming out, sort of screaming at people because they're not meeting targets and being a bit funny because targets haven't been met when people don't actually even know in the first place what's expected of them. 
funnily enough, I did a post on LinkedIn, you know, a buyer buys a business and goes in and suddenly wants these owners to be building budgets, having KPIs. And the thing is with these employees, if they've never worked in a corporate company before, they've never probably even built a budget, know how to build a budget, let alone present those budgets. But these people are probably directors. I've seen it myself when we've done post-acquisition consultancy. You know, you have managing directors, sales directors, uh, supply chain directors, whatever they may be. And, you know, they're really good at their job, but they've never sat there and thought about the financials so much because they've never had to because the previous owner of this SME company just took it all on his shoulders, never really had any financial reporting, kind of went by the money in his bank. And it was a successful company, but never really traded the way that probably the investor does. So I think understanding skill sets of people and what you want them to do versus what they do do if you find that out pre-acquisition it gives you some quick changes after acquisition yeah and I think you've got to also be careful in terms of some of the cheapy legislation around that that person transfers on their terms and conditions the job the role that they're doing um, as a result and that's where you definitely need kind of HR input advice and support about you know if you're looking to make changes post or pre or pre or post transfer you know some legal implications that could happen as a result because absolutely that person nine times out of ten is lifting and shifting as if nothing changed literally just the name of their their employer has changed everything else remains the same but it is then you kind of looking okay what skills that you've got what are the opportunities to grow and develop that individual particularly if they've come from an organization where they haven't been given that opportunity to kind of maybe show some of their expertise or develop in a particular way or have the opportunity to be promoted if they're going into a larger organization maybe mm. and that's why they need the contracts reviewing isn't it because you know it's easy for people to go in after and just go regardless of their role you know it's easy to go in as a warehouse director and go right now you're doing this and you're doing this budget you know at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter the seniority of the role I suppose at the end of the day if you're changing the role quite substantially or wanting to change some of those roles you have to abide you kind of have to abide by the law I mean maybe some people are lucky going and change and someone just adapts maybe that can happen but ultimately on the reverse side someone might not and then that's when you get yourself into a sticky situation isn't it Absolutely. And that's where definitely speaking to somebody like myself helps in terms of what you what you can and can't do within kind of the boundaries of the legislation. And I think, you know, a lot of the time I've found that where the person has been, you know, communicated with, been part of that process, often, you know, willingly kind of accepts those changes. And often it is an opportunity for them to grow and develop and maybe get promoted. But ultimately, where you want to change that quite significantly and maybe to the detriment of the individual, that becomes a very different story. Hmm. Yeah. And how, and how do you find, I mean, I like, you know, we, I think probably my podcast, I've had a mix of men and women on it so far. I think it's about 50-50 actually. So I'm not preference either way. I have men and women on the podcast, but um, what do you see in terms of women in business? You know, cause I quite like having female entrepreneurs, especially people in acquisitions. I think it's quite, you know, I know myself working in acquisitions, 98% of the people I work with, be it within professional services on acquisitions or people doing acquisitions is men um so it's nice to see women. yeah and yeah absolutely and interestingly i would uh, randomly go for my instagram feed yesterday and a, a pitch came up saying that of the sme population um that a quarter of businesses are female-led mm. I actually thought that was quite sad in terms of statistics. I thought I'd love it to be a lot, lot higher. Of course we would. But actually, if you look in the corporate world and senior leadership positions, I've certainly, in most of my career, I've reported into a global HR director somewhere across the other side of the world 
and they've been male. And I would say, you know, that's been my experience in the corporate world that a lot of those senior leadership teams I've worked in, again, have predominantly been uh, male dominated and often been in a 70-30 split in an organisation. But I think what I've definitely found working in the SME community is I've experienced loads more uh, female business owners, female founders. um, And that for me has been so inspirational as part of my journey to kind of motivate me and move on and actually see really successful, powerful women, you know, who have had maybe similar stories, journeys, worse journeys than you, but turn around and make that really successful. But let's try and get that number up. Of course, it's not enough. We need a lot more. Yeah, no, I know. And I, people say it to me because you know that are people I get told um we've never actually seen a woman sort of leading these sorts of professional services and acquisition before I get told that by a lot by men and actually the I I find I've had a really good take to it like people actually say they like the fact that I'm a woman and actually I've had some clients that are hiring after and they're like oh Julie we need to hire and we know we need to hire a woman you know which is a bit of a joke you know obviously they can hire a man as well but I think it's nice when you see sort of female-led departmental heads or directors or business owners isn't it because it means we're pushing up in the world (laughs) absolutely and I I look back at my career and think you know HR is very female dominated career is a a caring profession we we tend to call it and I think for me you know it's sad for my career the reflection is that most of those senior senior positions globally have definitely been male dominated positions but yeah we definitely see a shift in the change but I'm definitely proud to be in that quarter of SME business being a a female business owner. I wonder how people change it though because it is hard because obviously men do a good job as well but I mean from a organization recruiting if they wanted to, say, have more female-led roles, the problem would be is if they actually went to market, I don't even know if this would be legal, but if they actually went to market and said, we only want to hire a female, I mean, you probably can't do that anyway, can you? So Absolutely, you can't. But you can do what we call this little thing called positive discrimination. So if you feel there's a part of your your local community or the, the uh, gender balance that is, you know, you want to kind of correct then absolutely you can do what you call positive discrimination. So if you were, and this rarely happens to be fair, but say you were going to recruit two, I don't know, financial controllers, one was male, one was female. They got through the final stage of say the recruitment process equally matched in terms of experience, qualification, and literally there wasn't kind of a, you know, nothing you could kind of put between the two of them. You could decide actually we'll go for the female because we're underrepresented in female leadership positions in this organization that would be what we call positive discrimination and that would be allowed but to actively go out there and say right no we only want a female person then absolutely can't do that but if you were you know undecided and they were fairly matched candidates then actually you could decide to to appoint the the female organized uh, person as well but other things to consider is how do you attract females to the more senior positions you know often you know females would have had you know career breaks and that might have impacted you know their acceleration in their career maybe looking for flexible working home working and that becomes more difficult the more senior you become in an organization but we've seen some big organizations like the bbc have their senior hr role actually being a job share between two females um so there is definitely a shift in change in some of that mindset out there and let's hopefully we'll see some more of that along the way yeah and i suppose also part-time dads as well because i'm sure there's some stay-at-home dads out there that want part-time roles isn't it so um yeah it's good I mean we're fully virtual we're fully flexible anyway by company because we don't have any offices or anything and I know that our staff think it's really good you know we do have 
targets and stuff that people have to meet but we are flexible like for instance you know we've let our staff go and work in other parts of the country like over different countries and things like that to go on holiday and things like that whilst we're working um which is good of virtual working so yeah mm-hmm. and absolutely always be careful on some tax implications yes. but that's a different podcast yeah, yeah that is a different <laughs> podcast yeah that'll be the type of tax director come on there you know there'll be a, we yeah. don't just start letting people work from anywhere just in case you have tax implications <laughs> Um, yeah, and I definitely. have to ask something else, Rachel, because I see this on socials of you a lot. So your it goes away from HR, but your tattoos, this is just brilliant. Oh. I have to do it because I didn't even know that you had tattoos. I've obviously known you for a little while now. And then you had no. this photo on LinkedIn that like showed, oh, is it a full sleeve? Yeah, got full sleeve on the my right arm. I thought it was my left then, even I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, how have you found... I just think this is interesting. How have you found discrimination differences between sort of in the business world versus in the corporate world? Have you seen a shift? Um, not, as, not as much as maybe I had expected, but I think it's been, it's something that's been sort of very personal to me. So definitely in the, I think because of my profession and what I did um, and having tattoos for 26 years, you know, it's very, when I had it done, it definitely was a taboo, you know, it wasn't, anything anyone talked about and I it was a yeah a secret that I kept and I had tattoos I could easily hide hence why my back's got lots of random things on it um and I think for me I definitely experienced if you know my husband's yeah heavily tattooed as well and we've had very very different experiences both outside and inside of work of discrimination and comments made you know he's certainly not experienced the degree of things that I've experienced in my career and then I think you know I started to work with HR policies procedures that started to get really quite strict and you know no tattoos on shoe can't and I and I'd sit there and sometimes be in meetings and people would start being quite derogatory about people with tattoos and you know making a perception about them I'm thinking if only you knew um, so it's quite nice to have that little secret um, but then you know there's people that I've worked with for years that never knew um, and you know reached out to me so I decided you know actually I've kind of put myself in a little box because the corporate world expected me to be in that little box I now need to be the more me, the authentic self. That's part of why I've made the choice to do the journey that I've done. And I just thought, I'm just going to throw it out there on LinkedIn, see what people's opinions are. Because my view is you've all got to, most people got to know me without tattoos. So if I've changed one person's perception about people with tattoos, that we can be professional, we can be successful, uh, we can have great careers, we can earn some great money, then hopefully that for me, I've made that one change to somebody's mind about me. But it's definitely, I lots of people opened up to me. I saw a lot of support actually from the SME world of actually, you need to be your true self. You need to be your authentic self. When you next come to a networking event, make sure we can see your tattoos on show, which it's never really going to be me particularly. Um, but definitely for me, I think it's I brought that side out of people being really open about it for themselves. But the sad thing is that I had a lot of people in the HR profession message me privately because obviously they don't want to make comments on LinkedIn in case their colleagues or employers saw to say, you know, I've been in a similar situation. You know, I've not been able to show my tattoos or express myself in a way because of the career I've chosen and what to do as well. But definitely, I mean, I'm of the view, I'm still of these ones. I would 
would say don't have your hands, neck and face tattooed because you can't cover that up. There's still a lot of stigma out there, both in the SME world, both in the corporate world and both in society around tattoos. Um, and definitely, you know, for me, I made the choice that I can decide to show them or not show them depending on how I'm feeling that day. Hmm. And interesting. So are you allowed the policy in a company that says you're not allowed to show tattoos? Is that legal? Absolutely. There's a thing called corporate image. So it could be, you know, about, you know, that, you know, particular dress code, what you can wear, what you can't wear, uh, what's appropriate in the workplace. It's definitely about the corporate culture, but there's some things that could be, um, you know, discriminatory in terms of, you know, particularly around kinds of particular around uh, religious dress or things like that, that people need to take into consideration. So yeah, you could, to some degree, well, to quite a lot of degree, you can uh, definitely enforce a, a corporate image. So it could think be like, no, and piercings on show but a lot more businesses now being much more lenient and as long as those tattoos on show aren't offensive um particularly if you're still in a, a customer facing role face-to-face -face sales roles there's still a little bit of stigma about not having tattoos on shows when um, going to professional meetings with clients mm. yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean i could think i could it wouldn't even cross my mind to think about tattoos or anything like that on people i just think you know people do a job and they are who they are aren't they so that's, I, do, I suppose there absolutely. are I suppose there are different professions but yeah absolutely and I, I choose to wear my art rather than hang on a wall um, should someone treat me differently because of that you know I'd like to think 23 years career in HR corporate world is good enough to show I'm good at what I do I'm not going to be one of these that's going to be you know blaringly showing all my tattoos off just to be controversial it was just to uh, you know ignite that discussion and get a healthy debate going yeah, no, it's cool. I like it. So, so we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Um, I, I mean, we've done a lot of talking about HR and acquisition. So I hope people go away and I don't think enough people bring on HR representatives personally in acquisitions. That's my um, experience. So hopefully people will think about the HR side of things when they're buying. But in terms of if people need help, uh, where can they find you? Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. So uh, Rachel Collar or the House of HR, spelled H-A-U-S, or Instagram and Facebook. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Rachel. It's been a pleasure to have you. Um, and to our thank listeners, uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, if you love our shows, hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Um, we're trying to get it up so more listeners can see the show. And we'll see you again soon. So, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast, then please share it with them. Either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a Facebook group or other social media channel. Don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon. 